This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. We're really uh, so delighted to have Professor David Blight with us this evening. Uh, you know, he teaches American history at Yale and is an award-winning authority on, on slavery, abolition, the legacy of, uh, of the Civil War. He's also devoted much of his professional life to studying Frederick Douglass. In fact, David's first book, the first of, uh, of half a dozen he's authored, was on Douglas. It was published nearly 30 years ago, and David hadn't planned after that to write a full biography of the runaway slave-turned-leading abolitionist writer and orator. But then he met Walter Evans, a collector in Georgia who has amassed much Douglas material. The Evans collection afforded David many new insights, especially into the final third of Douglas's remarkable life and eventually led David over nearly a decade to research and write the new biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. It's hard, of course, to exaggerate how prominent Douglass became in the 19th century and how important he's remained in the history of our country. As David notes in the introduction to his book, Douglass was the most photographed American of the 19th century and, and one of the most widely traveled Americans then, perhaps second only to Mark Twain. He also was among the most highly regarded orators and writers on America's racial condition as well as the, the human condition. Today, Douglas gets embraced by many across a broad political, political spectrum, by Democrats and Republicans, by liberals and conservatives. That's a testament not just to his iconic stature, but to the complexity and brilliance of his own oratory and writings. He held contradictory views of the United States, a country he both loved and severely criticized. In fact, so many of the racial and political tensions that characterized his own times and that remain unresolved today were reflected in Douglas's life. Douglas did leave his own extensive accounting of his life. He wrote not just one, but three autobiographies. You'd think the availability of so much memoir material would help a biographer, but it also can pose some challenges. Uh, David takes the challenges in stride, recognizing that Douglas's self-image as a self-made hero left a great deal unsaid. David clearly admires Douglas, but he also is as well prepared as any historian today to examine critically all the paradoxes, the many sides, and the turbulent life of his subject. David does so in impressive and engaging detail in his illuminating, comprehensive volume. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming David Blight. <clears throat> thank you, Brad. And uh, thank you all for coming. There is, you hear this every week here or every night here. There is no other bookstore like this uh, that I know of anywhere. And I've been to a few lately. Um, the two greatest audiences one can have are a bookstore audience, especially at Politics and Prose, and public library audiences. I had the chance just uh, two or three weeks ago to go to my hometown of Flint, Michigan. There's not a lot still standing in Flint, but the public library is still open. And by God, we had an event at the public library, a building I grew up in. Now, Bradley already mentioned Walter Evans and the collection in Savannah, which has everything to do with why I wrote this book. So I may just spare you that for the moment. 
although it truly is the reason I did this book, encountering, by blind good luck, a private collection held in or owned in Savannah, Georgia, and having spent many spring breaks and many other weeks uh, working on Walter Evans's dining room table, and that collection is the reason this book exists, and I dedicated the book to Walter and his wife, Linda. But I want to throw us right into a political moment uh, for Douglas and for the nation. And it's in part because I just, I spent the afternoon in a hotel room here writing an op-ed for the New York Times all about this event. <laughs> so why not, you know, try it out here. I don't know if the Times will run it or not, probably not. But you never know. Uh, it's the winter of 1866. Think, think of the moment. It's not even 10 months after Appomattox. Reconstruction is yet to be determined. Although the Republicans in Congress, those of you who know your history, the Republicans in Congress have just begun to halt Andrew Johnson's attempts to control Reconstruction, Johnson being Lincoln's successor. The Republicans appointed a joint committee on Reconstruction that winter, and that committee was in the middle of meeting, 15 members assessing the entire situation with 144 witnesses on, of, of the situation on the ground in the South, conditions of the freedmen, the conditions of white people, the, the, the situation of violence and terror, uh, the need for continued occupation troops, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau and what it would be and how it would work. Everything was up for grabs. No one knew the future from the present any more than you and I do right now in a colossal national crisis. The war was over and the entire nation is in mourning for 700 and some thousand plus dead Americans. There's going to be some new possibly revision of the Constitution that comes out of this war because you got 4,000 freed slaves who have to become something like citizens, or do they? Everything's up for grabs. And in the midst of those hearings, Douglas is in Washington. He didn't live here yet. He's not going to live here until 1872, although right at the end of the war, he was already trying to get to Washington. He was trying to get to the center. He was trying to get somewhere near or inside Republican Party politics if he could. But he led a delegation of 12 other black leaders, one, including, one of which was actually his oldest son, Lewis, to the White House to have a meeting with Andrew Johnson. Now, if you know your Andrew Johnson, you know that he was not gonna be terribly welcoming. They did not have an appointment. They didn't have an invitation. They just went and asked for an appointment. And Johnson said, okay. But what ensued that day was probably the worst encounter between a group of black leaders and an American president ever in our history. It was a disaster, one might say. Uh, Douglas was the chief spokesman. His sort of co-chair of this group was a man named... Um, uh, Downing, who was actually the head 
the head um, caterer, or he ran the, the mess kitchen uh, for the U.S. Congress, Richard T. Downey. Anyway, Douglas led the delegation, and he opened by telling the president that they were there to insist upon the right to vote for African Americans, that they were there to insist upon, in their words, equality before law. Now, that's before that gets into Section 1 of John, John Bingham's Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, but Douglas used the same phrase before Andrew Johnson. Uh, he said they were also there to talk about civil rights and citizenship. He uh, respectfully addressed Johnson as Your Excellency and a lot of other highfalutin words, but he didn't get to speak for very long. Andrew Johnson interrupted him, and for the next 45 minutes, President Andrew Johnson harangued this group of black leaders to their faces uh, with a whole host of arguments, including, he said, uh, he was not going to stand there and, he said, be arraigned by a man who could spin language and use rhetoric so well. <laughs> and he was, not, he was especially unhappy about Douglas bringing up Johnson's distinguished predecessor. Presidents sometimes don't like to be reminded of their predecessors. And then Johnson said, you know, what you're asking for here is going to cause a race war. If we give black people the right to vote, it's going to cause a race war. We can't have a race war. And therefore, the only real solution to the situation here of emancipation and its aftermath is colonization, which means removal of as many black Americans as possible outside of the United States. And then it only got worse. And you got to imagine Douglas and 12 other black men sitting there listening to this. And nothing had ever animated Frederick Douglass, negatively animated him, quite like being told colonization or removal from the United States or the denial of birthright for black Americans was the solution to their lives. But it did get worse, because then Johnson said, but I want you to know the real victim, the truest victims of this war were the poor white Southerners. Now, Andrew Johnson came from the poor white class in the South, as you may know. And he said, the colored man and his master conspired against the poor white man and made him their slave. Use the word slave. And then he went on to say, now I want you to know, he's speaking to the black leaders. He said, I have owned slaves and I have bought slaves, but I never sold one. I, well, that was supposed to be positive. And then Johnson said, and in my experience, I have been more their slave than they mine. This went on for about 40, 45 minutes. Douglas would raise his hand, try to interject. He did get in line at one point saying, but, 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 Mr. President, until the black man has the vote, slavery is not dead. He did get that in. And then to the race war comment, he managed to get in a line about how 
Mr. President, Mr. President, uh, Your Excellency, uh, the thing you most fear can only be prevented by the thing we most desire. The vote, civil rights, protections. Then it ended in, you know, this kind of absurd situation, probably with some of the black men in the room murmuring to one another, who knows what they were murmuring? I don't know what they were murmuring. I have no evidence of that. But what we do know is that when they were walking out, a stenographer and one of Johnson's aides overheard the president say, those, quote, damn sons of bitches thought they had me in a corner. And that damned N-word Douglas, he's just like all the rest of those N-words, He'd, he'd sooner cut a white man's throat than not. And Douglas said he overheard it. That was their meeting with the president. <laughs> Didn't go well. And Douglas then did what he did so many times in his life. He went back to his desk in a hotel and he started crafting a speech. In crises, whether the crisis was the Fugitive Slave Act back in the early 1850s or uh, the many crises during the war, many crises in the late 1850s, crises after the war, Douglas went to his pen. He went to his desk. And like uh, many of you, I bet, he didn't know exactly what he thought about something till he wrote it. Till he wrote it down. He, he had that kind of... Um, writer's necessity or need. And the speech that he crafted in the next week or so was entitled Sources of Danger to the Republic. He took that speech on the road in the winter, uh, well, by spring 1866. He gave it all through 1866 into 1867, along with other speeches he would give. But Douglas was always on the road as an orator, no matter what year you look at him. In that speech, he skewered Andrew Johnson, just, I mean, butchered him. He called him an unmitigated calamity of a president. He called him a disgrace to the nation, and he said the country must now, for the time being, quote, stagger under his rule. Then Douglas showed a lack of judgment, actually, frankly, I think. Douglas was so despairing or fearful or anxious as most Americans were at this moment. Again, it's 1866. Right at this moment, they're when he takes this speech on the road, they're debating on the floor of Congress the 14th Amendment. Arguably, arguably the greatest uh, legislative result of the American Civil War, especially Section 1. Equality before law and birthright citizenship. The very things Douglas's delegation had gone to uh, chat with the president about. But Douglas was so fearful of what was to come and didn't know where to put any confidence that he recommended three constitutional amendments in this speech. And this is what I mean by kind of losing his judgment for a moment. The first was to eliminate the president's veto power. Well, Johnson had been issuing vetoes already. Veto the Freedmen's Bureau Act. He's going to veto everything that comes. He's going to veto the Civil Rights Bill. His famous veto of the Civil Rights Bill is still taught in many courses. 
Uh, and then within time, Johnson's going to issue more vetoes than all the previous American presidents put together. Now, I'm not saying that was a good idea. Secondly, he recommended a constitutional amendment to eliminate the president's pardon power because Johnson was issuing pardons, uh, quite soon blanket pardons for ex-Confederates. And then Douglas went even further and recommended a constitutional amendment to eliminate the vice presidency, <laughs> which didn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. Um, well, there wasn't one at the time. Douglas didn't have an analysis at that moment of, well, what would have happened after Lincoln was shot if we didn't have... I, it shows more Douglas's own hatred of Andrew Johnson, frankly, um, than it shows prudent constitutional reasoning, perhaps. But before he ended that speech, and then I'll leave this, he said this. It's a kind of a maxim, I think, for republics. He said, our government may at some time be in the hands of a bad man. When in the hands of a good man, it is all well enough. We ought to have our government so shaped that even when in the hands of a bad man, we will be safe. That's actually echoing James Madison. I mean, Madison's famous writings, in The Federalist and other places. What is government? Well, it's a monitor on the evils of human nature. It's a monitor on all of us. It's a monitor on the bad man lurking maybe in all of us. Sources of danger. I just like to use that not only because it has a certain political resonance, <laughs> in case you couldn't tell, but because it is an example of a thousand others of the way Douglas responded to his times, whatever that times was. He went to his desk, he wrote it down, then he took it out in his voice, like almost nobody else in the 19th century. <clears throat> now, I wanna be fairly quick here because I can imagine the fantastic questions in a politics and prose audience uh, I do want to say quickly that, um, like every other biographer, I like to claim Douglas was the most complex person of the 19th century. Now, you know, that he's full of contradictions and paradoxes, and he is. He is one of those public and private figures that you can't put in neat boxes. There are times when Douglas seems to be, especially before the Civil War, in every way, the radical abolitionist, the radical thinker, the radical activist, the radical editor of his own newspaper, fiercely speaking truth to power, fiercely beating down or beating on the doors of American power uh, with little, if any, hope that slavery would ever die or ever be ended in his lifetime. But then, of course, there are other times you find a, a Frederick Douglass who's learning a certain political pragmatism. He's learning that well before the Civil War. He's certainly learning it in the 1850s. Indeed, he does learn it in the 1850s as he became a political abolitionist and less of a Garrisonian, a follower of William Lloyd Garrison, less of a moral suasionist believing that you could only change the world by changing hearts and not necessarily by changing laws. But if we go on to the war years and especially the post-war years, 
Douglas became quite the pragmatist. He became a, uh, a political insider. Uh, he became a, um, a functionary. He became a bureaucrat, a federal bureaucrat, uh, holding three appointed positions from three, well, three different presidents. Uh, sometimes we find a Douglas who, who in the 1850s not only um, becomes very political, but he even shoulders up to the possible uses of violence. I mean, he hated mob violence, but nevertheless, he did believe in certain kinds of revolutionary violence, and hence the ways he got so close to John Brown. Uh, by my count, he and John Brown met 11 times, and I have an entire chapter on their relationship. Uh, but in the end, he also had the great good wisdom not to join John Brown at Harper's Ferry on what Douglas thought was a suicidal mission. However, that same Frederick Douglass we're going to find in season and out preaching self-reliance to his fellow blacks. Self-help. Create your own institutions. Stop, stop asking, asking for handouts. Self-reliance. Self-reliance. He famously put it into a speech and then into writing many times during Reconstruction to that question always he was asked and Americans were asking, what is to be done with the Negro? What will be done to the Negro after emancipation? Douglas would answer, do nothing with him. Uh, do nothing, he would say, with him or to him, but give him fair play. And the do nothing line became almost like a dictum at times. That Douglas has, of course, been appropriated today, over and over and over again by the American right, uh, by blacks in the American right, by the Cato Institute in a recent book, must be somebody here from the Cato Institute, a book called Self-Reliant, I'm sorry, <laughs> a book called Self-Made Man, where the argument is that because Douglas was such a proponent of self-reliance that it was the core of his thought and he was therefore a prophet of individualism and not of government action, which is frankly, I just want to say it, nonsense. <laughs> Douglas was always a believer in activist, interventionist federal power to destroy slavery, to defeat the Confederacy, to establish civil and political liberty and rights for black people and protect them, to try to protect people against violence and terrorism on the ground in the South if it was possible. He was a believer in activist intervention as government, which is what the radical Republicans believed in. You can't put him in boxes, though. Uh, sometimes he is the prophet of the natural rights tradition, and then sometimes he is, you know, he is this prophet of self-reliance. Um, depends on when you look. It's a long life and long lives across epochs of time and history, especially if it's a person who's really participating in that history, is going to be fraught with contradiction. But that's what makes biography interesting. I mean, if there weren't these contradictions and paradoxes, why would we read biography? I mean, there, there, there are some people who don't have great biographies. It might be because they were a bit boring. I don't know. Um, think, think of this life another way. 
and then could have been a spiritual or something. It would have been more. <laughs> Let's let it ring out. Bingo, it's over. All right. <laughs> All right. Douglas is born in 1818 along a horseshoe bend in the Tuckahoe River out on the eastern shore of Maryland in a true backwater of the American slave society. It's a, there's a series of near miracles that lead to the fact that we even know about him. But he's going to live all the way to 1895. He lives pretty much the entire trajectory of the 19th century. He's born before steamboats are, are really in American harbors or on, on, on rivers. He's born before the telegraph, before the railroad, and before the rotary press, which are all those wonderful elements of 19th century modernity, all of which he is going to use to fashion a life and a career especially that railroad and the rotary press. Uh, I don't remember if Bradley said this or not. I speculate in the book that, that he may have traveled more miles than any American in the 19th century with the possible exception of Mark Twain. But Twain cheated. He went to Asia. So it's count. But Douglas is going to live all the way to the age of electric light bulbs and the telephone and the phonograph and a bunch of other things of a, of a later form of modernity that we associate with the late 19th, early 20th century. And that always raises the question, was he ever recorded on phonographs? And so far as we know, the answer is no. It's amazing. This greatest voice of the 19th century was never recorded, and he could have been, but he wasn't. Anyway, and in between, of course, he lived through the vast epic of America's, uh, you know, greatest, if not certainly the most divisive of our stories, slavery, the war, Reconstruction, and all their afterlives. And he had something to say about it all. I boiled down all this uh, complexity and seemingly, uh, a seeming infinity uh, to six big themes. And I'm just going to name them and then let you ask about it. Um, it is what historians do. We impose order, right? I mean, what else can we do? We have to impose order. And this man wrote millions of words. That's the first theme. Words. We wouldn't even be here if it weren't for Douglas's words. He's all about the language. Uh, he never held elective office. He had some appointive offices. He never made a living, a dime, doing anything in his public life from 1841 to 1877 any other way than with his pen and his voice. I always tell my students, being an abolitionist was not a good career move. There's nothing upwardly mobile about it. There's, there are no pensions, for sure. And there surely were no salaries. His pen and his voice, that's all he ever had. Words. He had an amazing genius with words. There's a deep, deep, interesting story about how 
little Frederick Bailey came by language, and then teenage Frederick Bailey began to really practice language and oratory, um, both the physicality of it and the language of it. And then the adult Douglas in his 20s, Frederick Douglass in his 20s, began slowly but surely to master oratory. He didn't come out of slavery a born orator. He wasn't, he wasn't a born anything. He practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and especially practiced his writing because he wasn't a very good speller. But throughout this book, I make words a principal theme, really the subject. At one point, I, I argued with my editor that I wanted to call the book Frederick Douglass' Biography of a Voice. And he, I think, probably correctly said, nope. <laughs> too literary, you'll lose your audience. I don't know. It would have looked cool, too. Voice. But it would have been enigmatic, and you'd be wondering, what the hell's a biography of a voice? The second big theme, and Bradley already pointed to it, and I won't do much with it, is the autobiographies. 1,200 pages of autobiography. The first problem any biographer of a, of a Douglas faces is that the subject is always right there in front of you in your way, controlling you, manipulating you, making it hard to see, putting some blinders on you. Douglas writes the first one in 1845, the second one in 1855, his long-form masterpiece, My Bondage and Freedom, that second autobiography, the one everyone really should be reading instead of the narrative, but the narrative is nice and short, and it's a great coming-of-age story, and kids all over the world now read it, thankfully. And then the third one in 1881, Life and Times, an older man summing it all up, name-dropping, telling you all the famous people he's known and all the events he's participated in, and controlling what you know about those events, he hopes. And he revises it again 11 years later, yet another time. Never trust anyone who writes three autobiographies. <laughs> the problem is, of course, and it perhaps goes without saying, but in the 19th century, no one wrote tell-all autobiography. And he says in those 1,200 pages, very little, if anything, about his domestic and private or personal sides of his life. His first wife, Anna, of 44 years, gets one mention in 1,200 pages, and she's called my wife. He never talks about his sons and his daughter in the autobiographies, except to honor the service his sons gave in the Civil War as soldiers. He expresses pride. But he never tells us what a father says to a 19- and a 20-year-old son when he recruits them into an army where he can be not only, they can be not only killed, but enslaved. I have, by the way, a long list of the questions I would ask Douglas if I ever got him in a seminar room with the, <laughs> with the door. This is, a, this is a fantasy of a bunch of us Douglas scholars. Four hours at least, no bathroom breaks, the doors are locked, he's at the table, and we have at him. But every time you start, he just slithers out of the room and disappears. Mr. Douglas, what did you really think of William Lloyd Garrison? Mr. Douglas, Anna, she followed you out of slavery. She made your home, she made your life, she raised your kids. 
Your fifth child, Annie, died at 11. Anna's namesake. She remained illiterate all of her life. You could not share anything in your professional intellectual life to much extent with her. Mr. Douglas, explain. And there are about a, three dozen other questions I have like that. I'll spare you all of those right now. But he gets away. You have to find other ways into and around and through those autobiographies. There are ways. Third big theme in the book is the Bible. And I'll be quick with this, but it's a big, huge part of his story. And Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, he owned three complete collected works of Shakespeare. But he owned several Bibles. <laughs> Douglas learned his Bible as a kid. He started hearing the language, particularly the Old Testament, read aloud, often by himself, sometimes by others, especially with this old preacher in Baltimore when he was about 13, 14, and 15 years old. The man's name was Charles Lawson. Douglas called him Father Lawson. Lawson was a kind of storefront preacher, if anyone would listen to him. But he was only partly literate, and when he found this kid who could read so well, he just sat him down, and the mesmerized Fred Bailey just loved reading the Bible to old Lawson. He didn't always know what he was reading, and who does with some of those Old Testament stories? But Douglas learned language through the King James language. The cadences of Douglas's style are sermonic, and they are King James. More importantly, he drew stories and metaphors from the Bible. And over time, he especially adopted the greatest of all the Old Testament stories to his own story. And that's Exodus, of course. He's hardly alone in the 19th century among Americans in adopting the Exodus story. I mean, that's the way so many Americans, North or South, saw America. But Douglas found ways to embed himself, his people, and his nation in that story of the necessity of the destruction of Jerusalem, predicted, announced, warned by Jeremiah, by Amos, Ezekiel, Isaiah, etc. That temple in Jerusalem had to be destroyed, and that temple became Douglas's United States. Some people might survive. They did, will survive an Egyptian bondage. Some will even get to Mount Sinai with Moses. Some will even get to some kind of promised land with Joshua after 60 or 80 years or however long the Babylonian captivity may have lasted. But Douglas found himself in that story, and he could never stop telling it. It's hard to find a, a speech of Douglas's that doesn't have at least one passage or one paraphrase from Isaiah. Douglas became an American Jeremiah, self-consciously. I'll say one last thing about that. If you put the word prophet in the title of your book, you've got to be prepared to defend it. It's an awfully big word. And I had a lot of help with this. I wanted a, many times in the writing of this monster, I wanted a year off just to go read theology, to understand this guy. I didn't have that year off, but I had a few theologian friends on whom I really relied, and I love to name them particularly Don Shriver, the former 
uh, dean or president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. There you go. And he told me, after he got finished laughing at me when I asked him, Don, what do I read on the Old Testament? <laughs> he said, well, read Walter Brueggemann. He wrote 30 books, but read these two. Then I made very good friends with a rabbi in New Haven named Jim Ponet, who used to be head rabbi of Yale University. Jim retired. He had nothing to do with his time except come sit in my lecture classes, <laughs> go to lunch, and I'm sure he had other things to do. But Jim finally sat me down and said, all right, David, you got an Old Testament problem here. I said, I know, I know, I know. I said, so what do I read? And he laughed, and then he said, all right, you got to read this and that, but whatever you do, make sure you read Abraham Heschel uh, on the prophets. And I did, a book called The Prophets. And one of the many, many, many definitions that Heschel gives to the idea of a prophet is this one. The prophet said Heschel is human, yet he employs notes one octave too high for our ears. He experiences moments that defy our understanding. He is neither a singing saint nor a moralizing poet, but an assaulter of the mind. And the more and more I read Heschel and others, I began to see these definitions, these passages that said to me, mm-hmm. That's Douglas. He's an assaulter of the mind. The prophet is not the person we know who can predict things. That's a profane definition of a prophet. Prophets are often wrong with their predictions. We throw away that word, all oh, that's prophetic. That's not what a prophet does. A prophet is that person who can find the language to describe, to explain, to capture moments in time, pivots in history, catastrophes, triumphs that the rest of us can't fight, quite find the words for. Sometimes in words one octave higher than the rest of us can really understand. Douglas has that capacity if you read him in speeches or his writings particularly in many of his editorials. the short He wrote hundreds of short-form editorials in his newspaper. He mastered that genre, too. There are times when a sentence will just blast you. A paragraph will just nail you, and you got to read it again. And you have those aha moments because it sounded like today's headlines. A fourth big theme, and I'll be quick here, is I already expressed it. I try to weave it throughout his public life. He's that radical outsider who becomes the political insider. What happens to a radical reformer when his cause wins in the middle of his life? He's in his 40s. Emancipation came out of this Armageddon of a civil war, a war he wanted to happen. He didn't predict it accurately or any of that nonsense. But what, what do you do if you've been a radical and you've never done anything else? For God's sake, you, you win. What do you do? Well, it turns out he had a lot to do, and so did the country, and the country's going to need his voice, and he's going to give more speeches after the Civil War than he ever gave before. But what kind of compromises does the old radical outsider make when he becomes a political insider. We have many, many examples of this in our own lifetime. Think of him, Nelson Mandela. 
wow, you know, think of so many leaders of the civil rights movement. Think of a John Lewis and dozens and dozens and dozens of others who became mayors and governors and senators and congressmen. And there was a community organizer who became president of the United States, for God's sake. And a lot of us bitched at him, you know, about making compromises and forgot that, oh, yeah, he's the president. That's right. He's got to do, he's got to make deals. Um, how do you, how do you spend your life condemning the princes and their laws and then go join them? That's Douglas. He's the prototype for that in a hundred ways. Fifth big theme is the theme of any good biography. Uh, it's how do you balance the public and the private of a person's life? And I try to do that. I don't write just a chapter on the public and a chapter on the private and a chapter on his wife and a chapter. It's all woven together one way or another, and you, the reader, decides whether it works. Um, but Douglas had a complicated private life, to say the least. Uh, two marriages. Uh, one to Anna for 44 years, a free black woman who followed him out of slavery, the second to Helen Pitts, 20 years younger, a very well-educated Mount Holyoke graduate, abolitionist family, worked in contraband camps right outside D.C. here during the war, caught malaria, had to go home. Um, by all measures, a splendid marriage in the last 11 years of his life, but the most scandalous and controversial marriage of the 19th century. I don't know what else you'd compare it to. Most famous black men in the world one day in total secrecy married a white woman 20 years earlier. That was a scandal, believe me, in 1884. And one of the funniest things in the press coverage, and press coverage went on for months and months and months of this, is that people got so ugly in the press coverage that they kept making him older and her younger. I mean, he got into his 70s by the time this scandal was over, and she was like 31. They were 46 and 66. Oh. In the Evans scrapbooks that were so valuable to, to write this book, there's one in, there are 10 of these massive family scrapbooks. And one entire scrapbook is press coverage of the marriage to Helen. That's how much stuff there was. Um. My God, I, I could tell you. When Douglas moves to Washington in 1872, his three surviving adult sons, his one surviving daughter, Rosetta, between them, the Douglases had 21 grandchildren. Then he had about three fictive siblings that he adopted or who adopted him out of slavery, all of whom at one point or another ended up at Cedar Hill up in Anacostia. And virtually all of them, except his oldest son, Louis, ended up financially dependent on Douglas. He woke up every day of his life from the 1870s on wondering, did Charles lose another job today? Can Frederick Jr. feed his children? And is my son-in-law gonna sue me again? Which he did. His daughter Rosetta had the best education of all of his children, but she made a bad marriage to a young fugitive slave Civil War soldier named Nathan Sprague, who was what my mother would have called a ne'er-do-well, which was a broad category. <laughs> um, and last but not least, a big theme, a big sixth theme in the book, and again, it weaves throughout, once he becomes a public person, 
is Douglas the intellectual, Douglas the thinker. And he's now been for decades treated as a serious thinker, a philosophical thinker about law and the Constitution, and especially about the natural rights tradition. There are no less than three books now by political theorists on Douglas as a political thinker. There are no less than two full, at least the two that I know of, two full collections of essays on Douglas as a constitutional thinker. There's a collection by formal traditional philosophers on Douglas as a formal philosopher. He's been treated by literary critics since the 1970s. Some might even say overly treated by literary critics. Um, he was a theological thinker, a journalist, and quite an astute commentator on the problem of human memory, collective and individual. I try to make those six themes apparent throughout and the the forces that sort of drive the book. At a book talk the other day, someone raised her hand and said, why aren't you making fame your seventh big theme? And I said, good idea, because I do. There's a lot in here about the problem of fame, not just that he was famous, but fame was a problem uh, for Douglas. In fact, I, I show in the, or I try to show in the book or I argue that here in Washington, in the Washington press, Douglas's extended family became, in effect, the black first family of Washington. Everything they did, good, bad, and ugly, got into the press all the time. He'd go to work at the Recorder of Deeds office and wonder, oh God, what do I deal with today? What are they going to ask me today? Who's suing me or not? A last quick thought. Um, in the last sentence of Douglas's long-form masterpiece, My Bondage and My Freedom, the second autobiography, which is a much more political autobiography, that he lands there in 1855, in the middle of the 1850s, in the midst of the slavery crisis. It's right after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It's in the midst of fugitive slave rescues. Bleeding Kansas is broken out out west. And at the very end of the book, how does he end it? He says, as long as heaven allows me to do this work, I will do it with my voice, my pen, and my vote. My voice, my pen, my vote. I love that line because it's all any of us have. And most of us don't even have the pen. I mean, most of us don't write for the public. All he ever had. The only weapons Douglas ever had was a voice, a pen, and a vote. And he was damn lucky in 1855 didn't have that vote because in New York State, a black man had to have $200 worth of property in order to vote, and a white man did not. My voice, my pen, my vote. Thank you. Uh. Thank you. At the mic. Thanks for go for it. Really great presentation. This is a should be a simple, really simple question. That's right. why I jumped up. Um, <clears throat> in the in the immediate uh, aftermath of this fateful meeting with President Johnson, yeah, uh, when he goes and writes and then goes and speaks, yes, what he wrote, um, <clears throat> and just more generally, and when he's speaking in general, traveling around speaking, right. What, what was the composition of the audience with respect to those that mm. were already 
mm-hmm. very much on his side and versus those who were somewhat skeptical and went. Uh, so was he and kind of out of that, was he trying mostly to change the minds of people mm-hmm. who weren't yet on board or yet agreed with mm-hmm. him completely? Mm-hmm. Or was he trying to rally and spring and get uh, develop activism mm-hmm. on the part of those that were more activism? So when he'd go into the South, mm-hmm. uh, was he trying to He didn't go South in 1866-67. He goes to the Deep South later, a lot, in the 1880s, early 90s. The answer is all of the above. This this is an incredibly volatile time, as I tried to say. 66, big congressional election that fall. 66 does see the passage of the first Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. It's not going to get ratified until 68. There are huge, important elections each year in 66, 67, and 68. These are the first elections in which black people, black men, will have the right to vote. And in 68, indeed, black men in the South probably elected U.S. Grant. Audiences. Always depends on where and when you're talking about. Douglas is only lecturing at this point in the northern states. But he went everywhere. Small towns, big cities, churches especially, halls. By this point in his life, he's mostly an indoor speaker. But early in his career in the 1840s as an itinerant abolitionist, they spoke outside. They spoke in fields. They spoke in what was once called the Oberlin Tent, which was this huge tent built in Oberlin, Ohio, that the Garrisonians took on their 100 conventions tour and uh, pitched it in farmers' fields. They claimed it could hold 3,000 people. Douglas became one of those speakers on the Chautauqua circuit that people just wanted to see. I have hundreds of clippings that are basically just accounts of people saying, the first time I saw Douglas, or what he sounded like, um, and what he looked like. Now, who's he trying to convince? Well, at that point, he's, he's trying to make the essential argument of the radical Republicans, which is, The Civil War is a revolution that destroyed the first American republic and a second one must be reinvented in constitutional amendments. And by the way, Douglas actually opposed the 14th Amendment by that summer. It was too much of a compromise. It didn't go far enough. Uh, uh, The section two and sections, especially section two, wasn't aggressive enough about the right to vote for him. In the end, he's very glad it passed. Same's going to be true of Douglas with the 15th Amendment. He's going to actually oppose it at first. It's just too much of a compromise for him. But he was, of course, glad at least it was a start. I want to make sure we get to other questions. Yes, sir. Um, Douglas was alive during the first wave of Confederate memorial building. Yes. Uh, Intelligent people today realize that those memorials were built to basically celebrate the victory over Reconstruction and yeah. happiness of putting blacks back yeah. in their place. What did Douglas, uh, not me, uh, what did Douglas feel about the Confederate memorials? He hated them. Uh, one of my favorite lines about that is when Robert E. Lee died, now, there wasn't a major Lee monument yet when Lee dies in 1870, but all over the press there's, there's all this honoring of Lee going on. And uh, Douglas said, enough with all this, these nauseating flatteries of Robert E. Lee. 
Um, I wrote a great deal about this in the book called Race and Reunion. Uh, Douglas, the last third of his life, uh, one of the major themes of his, of his rhetoric, his life, his writing, was resisting the lost cause, was resisting the arguments of the lost cause, was resisting this idea that somehow the war hadn't been fought for slavery. And he saw the honoring of Confederate soldiers, whether it's in monuments or it's in rhetoric, as a way of avoiding and denying the true purpose, the true cause, and the true result of the Civil War. He spoke at endless GAR reunion gatherings. He spoke at unveilings of Union monuments all over the place in the North. And he usually would do so in a, in a way such that he would, he would argue that that was, that was the true cause worth honoring and the Confederate cause was not. Um, he saw the lost cause as the perpetuation of, of, of pro-slavery ideology, and that's really the way he expressed it. There are many, many memory speeches, and I quote some of them in the biography and more of them in that book, Race and Reunion, where he's making that case. Yes, sir. Professor Blight, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Um, um, I started reading. I started reading the book, and I'm truly finding it to be very interesting. Mm. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Um, but <laughs> no, no, that's not what. That's, that's not a, what I was about to oh, say. Oh, okay, good, good, good. But I was uh, one thing I was wondering is, do you know if Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. ever met or corresponded or communicated with Harriet Tubman? Yes, they met uh, not very many times, and he did write quite an extraordinary letter to her that in which, uh, I mean, she had said something to him through some kind of correspondence about all the honors he's getting, and he writes back to her and says, no, 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 I'm not the one who deserves the honors you do, because what you've done, I'm paraphrasing him here, but what you've done has been done in quiet, sometimes in secrecy, is not as well-known. I'm the well-known one, but you're the real hero. That's the tenor of the letter he wrote her. And they make a big deal of it now, and they should, up at the Harriet, Tape, the Harriet Tubman National Historic Site up in upstate New York. They didn't have a lot of associations. One would wish they had. She lived a lot in Canada before she moved back uh, to upstate New York. Uh, so they weren't exactly neighbors. He's already gone from Rochester to D.C. when Harriet moves back from St. Catharines in Canada back into New York. But they were born and grew up in just one county apart from each other on the eastern shore. Yes, sir. Yes. Good evening. Good evening. Um, if Frederick Douglass were alive today, would he favor reparations? Uh -huh. Two, did he ever leave a will? He did leave a will. What uh, did it say? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you might expect, it's mostly about his children and his real estate holdings. <laughs> uh, there wasn't enough in it about his books and papers. That got very confusing. Although the National Park Service has preserved his books out in a warehouse in Landover, which are priceless and I got to spend some days in there um, reparations 
Yes. He believed in reparations, if by that one meant um, passing the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction Acts and, 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 and the Secondary Reconstruction Acts, which were supposed to enforce the right to vote by an apparatus, a structure. Uh, if by reparations we mean allotments of X amount of money to the freed people at a given point in time, no, I don't think he ever said that at any given moment in time. Um, but if you had if you had pressed Douglas, say in 1880, oh heavens, let's say it's right after the civil rights case by the Supreme Court in 1883, if there should be our reparations at the moment, the Supreme Court has just in effect erased the very meaning of the 14th Amendment. He'd have been all ears about a reparation plan. Finally. But, Funny. Yes. Uh, in the 19th century, yes. Giuseppe Garibaldi yes. wrote three autobiographies. Oh, another one of those guys. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't want to write a biography of Garibaldi then. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think we all appreciate your conversation this evening and congratulations on the reviews that agree that the book is brilliant. So far, I'm lucky, but the shoe will drop. Uh, somebody um, waiting there to get My name me. is Elizabeth Griffith. I teach women's history at Politics and Prose, and I'm a biographer of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So oh, I'm of interested. course. I know your book. I know, I'm I know, interested. I can in, see your cover right there on my show. In that relationship. Sure. And with his relationship with other white women, his yes. mistresses, yes. his second <laughs> wife. Specifically, I want to know, after Stanton and Douglas fought over the 15th Amendment right. because it did not include black and white women, right. were they able to repair that? The rumor is that her support for his second marriage, when right. it was being damned by lots of other people, right. helped repair the friendship. But there's a lot to that because both Stanton and Anthony supported the second marriage. A lot of women suffragists did. Uh, included, so did Ida Wells, by the way, the young Ida Wells. Ida Wells became very close friends with Helen Pitts. Um, did this relationship with Douglas and Stanton ever truly get repaired? I doubt it. Although Stanton did write one of the most beautiful eulogy lines ever about Douglas when she said he was majestic in his wrath. I mean... That's as good as they get. That line, she could, she could spin a phrase. Um, that was a terrible breakup, as you know better than anybody. A horrible breakup. And the racism expressed by Anthony and Stanton, eh, partly about Douglas, but more generally about black men voting. Frankly, Douglas took it fairly gracefully at the time. Although he did fire back with some unfortunate lines himself, like the one that men tended to use, the classic stereotype. He said, I understand women have every right that men do, but let's remember that married women have husbands who can vote in their interest. It's like, oh, Fred. <laughs> ah, right when we thought you were modern, you're not. Um, I don't know how many hours we have to go into all the other women relationships. I'll say this. He had many more friendships. Let's call them friendships. Very important reform, abolitionist, and suffrage friendships with women than he did with men. I don't want to get too psychological about it, but Douglas 
found it easier to make close friendships with women than he did with men. The women weren't competitors in most ways. They were never really rivals, and he had some brutal rivalries, especially with other black male leaders of the next generation. Um, he did have two relationships with European women, one named uh, Julia Griffiths, an English woman, who came and stayed six years in Douglas's home in Rochester from 1849 to 55. I don't think that was a sexual relationship, but I cannot prove it, nor do I even want to. It was one of the most important friendships he ever had in his life. Julia was his assistant editor, his principal fundraiser. She bought the mortgage on his house. He, she saved his bacon and made it possible for him to keep providing for his family. She was also a tremendously important emotional support. We know that from her letters. The second relationship is much longer, much more complex, probably was sexual. Can't prove that either. Um, that was with a German woman named Otilia Ossing, and you can tell I'm trying to be really fast with this, and it's not possible. There's a great book on this by Maria Diedrich, a German... Well, there's a book on this. Um, I love Maria, but that book has some big speculations in it. It's called Love Across Color Lines. It was published, God, almost 20 years ago. Uh, but he had about a 22-year relationship with this German woman, Ottiliasen, who came to who was a brilliant uh, German Jew, though not a practicing Jew. She was a ferocious atheist, but a German 48er. Her parents were poets. Uh, she was about as educated as you could be. And she became, above all else, an intellectual companion to Douglas. Uh, she came to America to write about abolitionism in 1853-54. And when she, she wrote for a German journal called Der Morgenblatt, and when she read My Bondage and My Freedom, she was, we would say, blown away by it. And she booked a train out to Rochester, literally showed up at Douglas's home, asked to interview him, and then asked to translate it into German, uh, Bondage and Freedom, which she did with her own introduction, and uh, tried then never to leave for the next 22, 23 years. And it became a messy, complex, inscrutable relationship, 99% of which we know about it came only from her pen in about 200 or so letters she wrote to her sister Ludmilla in Europe. But what we do know is she came and spent about 12 summers in Douglas's home in Rochester, 11 or 12, uh, and would spend as much as three months at a time sitting in Anna's garden, reading, playing with her cat, eating peaches, and writing horrible things about Anna and Douglas's children to her sister. Um, I'm leaving a great deal out. <laughs> she lived in Hoboken, New Jersey. And Douglas frequently visited there, but what he got out of Hoboken, what we know he got out of Hoboken was that Otilia had a salon of German emigre artists and writers and intellectuals who lived in Hoboken, of all places. And she called, Otilia called it her gang. 
And Douglas was as special a guest as that gang could ever have. These were artists and writers and scientists. And they thought Frederick Douglass was the coolest, most exotic thing they'd ever found in America. And he would spend nights there and sometimes a few days. Um, it's not going to end well. She kept trying to coax Douglas to end his marriage, according to her, which he was never going to do. She kept trying to coax him to go to Europe with her, which he never did and probably never seriously intended to do. She finally gave up, moved back to Europe in uh, the early 1880s. And not too long after Anna died and Douglas remarried, um, Austin committed suicide in a park in Paris and left a $10,000 estate to Douglas's family. That's as fast as I can tell that story. And so you shouldn't have asked. And, but I have to tell you, this is woven throughout because Otilia Ossing enters his life in 1856 and she doesn't exit till the early 1880s. And she became very close with Douglas's children, even though she said some ugly things about them too in the letters. This was a highly arrogant, I think highly unlikable, brilliant woman who um, Douglas finally dispensed with, but after many, many years. Oh, well, he's got his own case of that, too. Uh, our man was uh, nothing if not uh, vain and uh, hypersensitive, too, by the way, to any kind of slights, be they racial or about his that lack of education or many other things. Uh, Douglas loved being king of the hill, loved being the center of attention, and did not like people trying to knock him off his pedestals. And Ossing kept him on a pedestal. We have a number of her letters to him, none of her to him. She burned them all. Yes, sir. Oh. Okay. Um, well, I'm just here to Bradley. say that although technically we're out of time, we'll take two more questions. Oh, okay. Right. Two brief questions. How did Douglas remain a Republican all his life? Hey, and like secondly, that. why doesn't the Republican committee quote from him? I'll take the first one. He remained a Republican all of his life because he had no other choice. Uh, the Republican Party was the party of emancipation and union victory and the party of Abraham Lincoln and the party of Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and many of, of Douglas's other political heroes and John Bingham and Lyman Trumbull and the people who wrote the Reconstruction Acts and the 14th Amendment. Um, Douglas had great difficulty staying loyal to the Republican Party by the 1880s and into the 1890s. But from Lincoln's reelection in 1864, although in 64 they wouldn't let him publicly campaign, Douglas campaigned for every Republican president in every campaign from 1864 to his last one in 1892. And the Republican Party sent him out on speaking tours for months at a time. Uh, all across the North, to selected areas where they thought he would be valuable. I could go on and on about that. By Republican committee, you mean today. Why don't they quote him? Uh, they do, sir. Too much, in my view. Because today's Republican Party, I mean, I think it goes without saying, but they don't believe it. Um, 
hasn't been that party that Douglas was loyal to for, what, at least 90 years, with a few things left over in the 1960s when some Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Acts. But the Republican Party that Douglas embraced is not the Republican Party that exists today. And, uh, but, but they still claim him, rest assured. When they unveiled the Douglas statue in Statuary Hall about three, four years ago, Lois Horton was there with me. Uh, Republican, and that's a, that's a very official congressional event, as you probably know, and all the leadership of Congress has to speak. Boehner and McConnell and Pelosi and Schumer and Joe Biden and on and on. They all, they all gave seven-minute staff-prepared speeches, and it was a totally partisan event. All the Republicans talked about what a great Republican Frederick Douglass was. And I just kept trying to look at my shoes. <laughs> but all the Democrats got up and said Douglas was a great proponent of home rule for the District of Columbia, <laughs> which is mostly true. I mean, he did advocate for that. And then Joe Biden talked about something else and saved the day. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but the Republicans were all walking around in a button the size of the one that you have on your left that said Frederick Douglass was a Republican. And I thought, Okay, for today, we can all smile and believe whatever fantasy we want. Sorry, but they do quote him today. The Republican Party in, in, in 2004, in President uh, George W. Bush's reelection campaign, published a calendar that they sent to the black communities of the United States. I wrote a piece about this where they trotted out every black Republican they could find in their history with Frederick Douglass up front. And Harriet Tubman, you didn't know how many times she voted for Republicans, did you? <laughs> All over this calendar was just full of 19th century black Republicans. You know, and I kept thinking, poor Harriet Tubman. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah. Are you heartened by the fact that uh, President Trump has praised Frederick Douglass as an up-and-coming black leader? <laughs> I, won't, I won't really give you an answer except to say the day, the day that that happened, <clears throat> I was actually teaching Douglass's narrative in my lecture course at Yale University. And... It, the news came later in the day after my lecture, and I got a text from one of my teaching assistants who said, David, have you seen this? And he sent me the link to it, because by then it was late, it was midday by then. He sent me the link to it, and he says, in my section at 1 p.m., I, I put this up on the screen. I showed, I showed the video of it. I showed President Trump saying this, and he said, as one, the class gasped. <laughs> and they said, he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> And so, am I heartened? Uh, no. <laughs> how, how can you be heartened by presidential ignorance? I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, whoever put that, I, I don't even blame him for that. Whoever put that in his hands when he went over to, to the, muse, the new museum to say that, I don't know. I hope they lost their job or something. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program 
Our email is podcasts at slate.com.